I have a clip from a sermon that's very instructive on what not to do. I have some thoughts on Britney Spears' memoir. That and a whole lot more on this week's Corey Act Show. student and disciple of the English language, and I still don't know how to say things like Spears with an apostrophe. If it's Britney Spears' uh, memoir or if it's Britney Spears' memoir, and I don't know if there's any fast and true rule or if we just make that up as we go. Either way, we'll talk about it at the end of the show. I have two things I want to do before that, and we'll dive in on them in just a moment. Welcome to the Court True Act Show, wherever you find podcasts. I'm so glad you're here. Genuinely grateful that you give me these 40 or 50 minutes every week. If you have thoughts for the show, you can get me at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or threads. Look for my odd name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And the only other thing I want you to know about me is I get to serve awesome people. They are the people of Beechwood Church. We are in Greenville, South Carolina. We meet at 1030 on Sunday mornings and other times, too, but that's our main worship gathering. You're invited. We'd love to have you. I don't know when yet, but somewhere late November, early December, I'll be back up starting with our uh, Hebrew, not starting, continuing with the Hebrew series I begun earlier this year. Can't wait to do it. Uh, You're invited out any given Sunday. I'll start here. It's a story from the Free Press that hearkened, it just activated in me several memories and I think expresses one of the ugly parts of our world. Secularism, godlessness, creates horror and ugliness. And one of the uglinesses of our world is illustrated in this story. And so it activated some experiences for me. It's an illustration of how ugly things are when they are godless. And I want us to be able to think properly and speak kindly and truly about a sensitive topic. Here is, uh, you can, here's, here's the title. Is it wrong to cure blindness? That's the title. Is it wrong to cure blindness? It also explores the question in the article, is it wrong to cure deafness? Let me give you my narrative. It all started last year. I covered it on the show when this YouTuber, he's the first or second most watched YouTuber. I've never seen anything he's done, but his name is Mr. Beast, and he paid for, because he's, Makes, a, makes gajillions of dollars off of his YouTube channel. He paid for 1,000 eye surgeries and restored the sight to 1,000 people. And I talked about it, I think that's about a year ago, on the show, because humans are miserable, and humans found ways to criticize one of the coolest things. They talked about it just being uh, this self-aggrandizing thing, and you shouldn't let your right hand, what your left hand, know what your right hand is doing. And if you really wanted to be a good person, you wouldn't put it on YouTube. It's, by the way, putting it on YouTube is how he funds the good things that he does. There, there were plenty of complaints. Why these thousand and not, not another thousand? There were all kinds of complaints because humans are miserable. He did a cool thing. Humans that could not see could see. And then I saw one strand of criticism back then that. Oh, activated something in my memory. There was one strand of criticism that was of this ilk. What's wrong with blindness? Why does it need to be healed? Blindness is, is it my core identity. It's about who I am. I am disabled. It's, uh, that is who I am at my core is disabled. And when you start trying to pay for a bunch of surgeries, like you, 
like something's wrong with those people. You're saying something's wrong with me, and nothing's wrong with me that I'm blind. By the way, if you suffer with a disability, I'm not, there's nothing more wrong with you than there is me in your moral character. I do not want anyone with family with disabilities to hear me saying, there's something wrong with you. God did something to you because you did something wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just giving you my natural response to someone acting offended that someone would heal an ailment. Blindness is an ailment. We were made to see. Our design is to see. And there were people bemoaning the fact that blindness was being healed in some people. Made me remember uh, a time in my teenage years. I I didn't speak up, I recall. It's not actually, this might surprise you, it's not my style to speak up unless I just feel like I have to. But someone that I knew personally was making a similar argument about deafness. This person was into American Sign Language and new deaf people, and she would even have said the word was into deaf culture. And then also just this this young lady was emotionally, had some emotional problems, emotional issues. I could see there was something there for her uh, identifying with what she would, which she would consider these people have something broken in their bodies. I think she felt like something was broken in her, and she was identifying with, with brokenness, her internal brokenness versus their external. That's me doing a lot of uh, armchair psychologizing, but that was what I picked up and why she was so into it, because she was super into it. In this one experience I had, she was very upset with somebody talking about having getting to heal. If it would be a great way to to address, or I think it was prevention, prevention of deafness, because she felt it in her soul. Well, what's wrong with being, de- with, with being deaf? And then this story from the Free Press, it starts with a story about Dr. Beast and this philosophical question, are we doing something wrong when we heal blindness or deafness? You start to hear this complaint theme of ableism. That's the odd to me label we've put on the argument, what's wrong with being blind? What's wrong with being deaf? Why would you want to change it? The le- the language in the article, if you want to go find it on, on the free press, it's, again, it's, it's called, Is It Wrong to Cure Blindness? You'll, you'll hear, they'll quote people saying, this is a war on disability. Healing the eyes of 1,000 people, you're, you are launching a war on people with disabilities by making it seem like something's wrong with them. These people argue that their disability is something to embrace. We should embrace our disabilities, our physical disabilities, when we, when we have them. I have this later in my notes to say, but I just feel like I need to say it now. If you have people with disabilities, if you are one of them, you know, I, while I'm calling you away from embracing them as a core part of your identity, I'm also not calling you to bemoan them. I don't. I don't know what Paul's thorn in his side was. We maybe that ambiguity and vagueness is helpful for us all. But the the Lord gave him that, and it's helpful so so we can envision all the various things that might be for us. The Lord gives you your lot. He purposes sovereignly for your good, even a disability, and that's something you can embrace. The Lord gave me this. I think Johnny Erickson Tata is one of the best examples of this. Broke her neck in a diving accident, I think, in her early t- or late teen years, 18 or 19 years old. She's paraplegic or quadri- I think quadriplegic and has lived an incredible life and knowing the Lord gave me this. Now, she also celebrates often the t- when it will be over, when she can walk again, when she can move again, when she can run and swim again in the new heavens and the new earth, when she is restored. She does both. She knows 
yes, God did this. Something is sovereign here, and the Lord did something that's good for me, good for those around me in this disability, and I can't wait for this disability to be over. I have that to say at the end, but I feel like I need to say it now. Now, a couple quotes I want to give you. The National Institute of Health. The, uh, wait, is the NIH? No, yeah, that's, that's American. The National Health Service, NHS, is Britain, and IH is us. They have, I'll just quote to you, an advisory committee within the National Institutes for Health took issue with the phrase, reduce disability. There was a couple studies and pr- proposals on how to reduce disability. Now people have brought up wanting to remove that. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to reduce disability? That's like saying you want to reduce people of a certain race or certain people. Uh, 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 you can pick up, pick up your category here. Because disability for these people has become almost like an ethnicity. Continuing that quote, a writing in a 66-page report published in December, the NIH worried that this could be interpreted as perpetuating ableist beliefs that disabled people are flawed and need to be fixed. Well, now, the Christian worldview here, the, the disabled person is not any more or less flawed or need to be fixed than I am with my very able body. We are all disabled by sin in, in that way. If you want to use that language, if you find that language to be offensive and you are disabled, I actually apologize for that. Even as I said it, I thought, eh, I don't know if that's the best way to say it. But the the idea of a broken body, I, I'm just even thinking about my own family, extended family, there are physical ailments that if they don't have medicines or treatments, they're not going to, they're not going to make it. We want those fixed. They're living fullness of life. The way that we were designed. There was an interview in this uh, in this article from a, a woman named Ariel uh, Silverman. She's my age, 38. She said the words that she sees her blindness as part of her core identity. Not just as her identity. She said the words, her blindness as her core identity. She added it with the word diversity because she's a white woman. I think this is why. She's a white woman. She said, this is what makes her diverse. This is what I, I'm talking about with the ugliness of our culture. Blindness, which is not, again, you don't need to feel any kind of badness about blindness. But it will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. The, go preach good news to the poor that the, that the, uh, sorry, that the lame walk and the, and the blind see. I'm paraphrasing what, Jesus was quoting from an Old Testament thing. He said to John the Baptist, when John the Baptist asked, are you the Messiah? Well, go tell him. Good news is being preached to the poor. The blind see the lame walk. It's not something to grab onto as part of our core identity. And our culture has so, is so ugly and that it's, it's driven by victimhood. How, how many bad things have happened to you? What kind of victim can you be? So that we turn our ailments... We turn our negative experiences into our core identities. The thing we are at the core is that our dad left us, is that our spouse cheated on us. The thing we are at our core is the, the, the way we lost this awesome job or how we got run out of this church or run out of this town for this given experience. That's who we are, is our adversities and our ailments. So much so it has driven this woman to resent blind people getting sight and for her not even for her not wanting to see she resents the idea that there would be a cure she says these words she resents the idea that there'd be a cure at all because cure means something's wrong 
Now, again, for the blind person, I could I can see the argument for the person who cannot see, cannot hear. They're given the opportunity to see or hear and decide for some reason for them that they don't want to in this life. Okay. I think I'd struggle with that. I'd, I'd want to ask a few questions. But the, the I can't place my conscience on someone else. I don't have the authority to do that. But that that's where, she, that's where the ugliness of this culture has left her, resenting the blind seeing, and you know, seeing it as ugly that she would be able to see. Just a couple more quotes here. A quote from the article. As both, now he's moving on to deaf, because deafness has had a much longer uh, culture, like because they have their own language, basically, not just like a written language, Braille. Um, as both hearing and deaf, this is the quote, as both hearing and deaf parents contemplated the n- new procedure for their young children, that's a procedure to, he- to help young babies hear, there were accusations of child abuse. Some activists ag- uh, against the new technology went so far as to say cochlear implants were a form of oppression. Maybe you have been like me. There's very few things that will make me get into my feelings. Like I, I will feel deep emotions and maybe even choke up. But the videos that I, I can't watch and not choke up are when a one-year-old, a two-year-old, three-year-old is getting their cochlear implant for the first time. They turn it on and they hear their mom's voice or their dad's voice for the first time and they just their, their world is lit up. I can't hold it in. It's so sweet. And our culture has gotten so ugly that there are people so identifying with a disability, they call the idea of a cochlear implant, implant oppression. That taking someone's deafness from them is taking their, their identity from them. This is another quote. They called it oppression and a potential ethnocide. That's ethnic cleansing. That deafness would be an ethnicity. They called it erasure of deaf culture. Final quote here. As scientists gained greater understanding of the genetic markers for deafness, there even emerged a movement within the deaf community for parents to select in favor of congenital deafness rather than screen it out. Now, that whole genetic testing thing gets testy to me altogether. But that's that's how far our culture has gotten. We, we were asking, there's some small group of people saying, choose disabilities. That's what you want for your kid. Now, now I'm looking at my notes, and I'm finally at my Johnny Erickson Tata point. So let me just close it here. There is no shame in disability. There's no shame in it. But the Christian attitude knows disabilities are a result of the fall. And so certainly we should reject the thinking that I just illustrated in that story. Uh, but let's, let's do both. Let's do what Johnny Erickson Tata did. Embrace that God did something good. He's going to do something good even through, even through a, I hate the word bad here, even through a challenging thing. And then we rest in the guarantee that our world will be beautiful. The beautiful Christian ethic is that our eyes see, our ears hear. We get to see the compelling, beautiful world God made. We get to hear the incredible music, the vibrations of sound, the things that he gave us to enjoy, that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more disabilities. Okay. Now, the second thing. I have the sermon for you I want to play in a second. In part, it will touch on now the several-year theme of how we view how... Old Testament law 
can be applied and how different Christians read it. That has been quite the theme on the show for a while now, thinking about Old Testament biblical laws and how they might apply in this world. And it's been all the weird ones. Just one popping to mind right now is that one about putting a, a railing around your roof so that when you're having meetings up on your roof, which was common then, no one would fall off. Now, that might not have happened to you. You might not have fallen off of someone's roof because they did they failed to put up their parapet, but you might have had the modern-day analogy, and that's getting hurt at work because of someone's negligence or getting hurt in a car accident. That might be the analog for today. And I know when that happens to you, I've seen it happen to family, or at least friends and friends I know, you're, they're losing money, they are stacking up medical bills, they're just trying to recover and then trying to get through a labyrinth of a legal process of trying to get justice. If that ever happens to you or someone you love, I don't want you to be intimidated by it. Don't be scared of it. There are people out there to help you. The person I want to point you to for that right now is a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. You can Google him. Samuel Harms, that's H-A-R-M-S, like stay out of harm's way. His number is 864-666-6666. That's Samuel Harms, attorney at law. For real, don't do these things alone. If you've been hurt in an accident or hurt at work, get in touch with Samuel Harms here in Greenville at 33 Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. So if you have been gored by the modern-day ox or fallen off of that neighbor's roof or balcony or the modern-day equivalent, Get in touch with Samuel Harms and just give him a call at 864-666-6666. Now, I have this I have this clip I want to play for you. Let me give you the context. It was shared by the recovering fundamentalist people. I've listened to very little from them, uh, but ultimately, if you need some background, they are uh, they, they grew up independent fundamental Baptists like I did. I technically grew up in that world. I went to a school like that. So if you don't know those people, that is the, uh, you're, you're probably hellbound if you have a tattoo, if you're a man with long hair, if the girls are wearing pants. Uh, very, very legalistic in nature. They have a very typical affect. Um, there are two strains I've noticed. There is the, the strain I grew up in, uh, which is, it almost feels like Baptist charismatic. The, the, the services are very uh, energetic and the, the preaching uh, is sounding like a this. Uh, it's very aggressive and it's it's performative. Then there is the more Bob Jones version of IFB, which is not the, it's the opposite of that. Actually, I, I like those people. We're not in the same th- tribes theologically, but the, the way they present and some of the values they have, I'm, I'm a huge fan of. This guy that I'm, you're, you're going to hear from is definitely of the, the former strain of fundamental Baptists, which, by the way, are not Southern Baptists. They actually don't like us at all, most of them. They're trying to make a point about legalism. I want to use this clip, it is about a minute, to illustrate several things, and eventually in relation to some of the theological arguments I see on the internet. Right now, especially regarding the the issues of the day, theonomy, how the Christian views law and government, not as much in eschatology or in times here. And the other one I want to hit is masculinity. Those two things, Christians and politics and masculinity, some arguments I've been seeing on the internet by two separate sides that I respect, people in both camps of the argument that I respect, and they don't seem to respect each other. So I want to use this as an illustration for several things. I'm hopeful. It's fruitful. And then we'll finish talking about, of all things, Britney Spears's memoir. Let's first get the uh, one minute here of the sermon. I will stop and start along the way.
We've lost our fear of God. When preachers have to wear tore-up jeans to be relevant, you've lost your fear of God. When people have to have a band and smoke and you have to turn the lights out to have church, you've lost your fear of God. I say if it's, if it's really a church and you're really a preacher, dress up like a president. Quick pause. We are only 30 seconds in to a one-minute clip. I'm not saying that every 30 seconds there needs to be a Bible reference, but I am saying it's very telling that he just said, I say. So the opening is, we got preachers in jeans. We shouldn't have preachers in jeans, I guess. And don't turn your lights out in, in the service. So we need smoke. Well, I say, that is not a biblically, a biblically informed, authoritative statement. Very much respect to this guy. I bet he's a Jesus-loving guy. But you're exegeting your own culture, your own traditions. You're exegeting your own opinions. You have no scripture here to claim those things. Now listen, I, I would argue, I, I would not mind that at my own church. I, I would never try to change that culturally. We are a very blue-collar place. But for, just to give you an example, um, when I ride by a much more traditional church on Sunday mornings and everyone's dressed up, I like it. I think it does say, it communicates something to me, but I know that there are men and women in my church who are ferocious Jesus lovers, who are in the scriptures with at least as much regularity, if not more regularity than the people who are in the at least the average person in one of those very, very traditional places. And their conscience doesn't tell them the same thing. That's, <laughs> so I, 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 I like at some level agree with this guy a little bit. Like, yeah, I wish people would dress up the church. And no, uh, a lot of the, the fantastical presentation, not, not into. I think it's ultimately, ultimately a distraction. I think sometimes it, it counts on the, uh, it leaves us leaning on the the methods of man instead of letting the word do its work. Yeah, I agree on all that. But he's preaching it authoritatively. I say, if you do, if you don't do it this way, you're doing it the wrong way, and you don't have enough Bible to lay that on someone else. I can even honor that tradition in, or at least honor that standard in your own tradition. If I were to go into an IFB setting, I actually do want to. Honor them. So, uh, in, a, in an independent fundamental Baptist setting, if for some reason I ever got invited to preach at one, I would use the King James Version. Why would I do that? And I'd wear a suit. Why wouldn't I do that? If I, got, if I needed to preach a funeral or someone asked me to do a, a wedding in those settings, I'm going to follow their standards. Because I've, I'm an invited guest. They're, they are te- they're my brothers and sisters in large part. Why wouldn't I? That's, in any event... I'm saying, I want you to get your mind in this vein. This person, without biblical authority, is imposing something that is in dispute. It's in dispute whether or not a preacher needs to wear a suit, or if, uh, I don't know, if you, you need to keep your lights on all the way up in the service or whatever. Those are disputable, and he is teaching them as authoritative. Turn on the lights in the house of God. Let everybody see what's going on. There's nothing secret that ought to be done in the house of God. We ought to shout out loud. We ought to not be ashamed of the... So hold on. Like, we, we ought to shout out loud. Listen, I like expressive worship. I, I love an I love environment 
where not just people are singing, but there is some shouting and there's some physical expression. I love that. Now, go downtown or First, Pres- Pres- First Presbyterian, whatever it is, with Dr. Gibbons, one of the one of the most brilliant men in the upstate, an incredible preacher. I, I listen to them as often as I can. Theologically sound and deep, as Presbyterians often are, and that's the Presbyterian denomination that hasn't gone off the rails. They've, they've been solid. You're not going to get a bunch of shouting. Take you, take yourself to the one of the best Presbyterians the last hundred years. R.C. Sproul's church, I don't think at least, had a lot of shouting in it. I might have. It could have. I could be wrong. It's just not how Presbyterians do it. And so, it's, again, it's an imposition. You should look like this, dress like this. These are disputed things, and it's being portrayed as absolutely authoritative. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to represent Christ to this world. This is not just a sanctified rock band up here. These are sanctified and anointed psalmists of the Most High God. Okay, you get, you get the theme, I hope. That theme, taking things that are preferences and presenting them as inerrant truth. Now, I think I wrote down like three or four things I want to say. One, matters of dispute need to be presented humbly. I think the way this guy just did it is the exact wrong way. In in a couple of ways. One, just strategically. Let's say you really have this you had this conviction. You'd think it's absolutely biblical and you'd quote some scripture at me. Just as a matter of strategy, winning, winning me over, that the, the, the humble appeal, and even sometimes that humble appeal can still be have some stern, sternness to it, as in, come, let us reason together. Come, as men, as adults, let me, let's, can you, will you think through this with me? Can I? Cannot? Can we even? Maybe it's even uh, argumentative in nature, respectful. But it is. It's not this. It's not. I'm telling you what it is. It's an errant truth. Get over it. It's just not the. It's not the attitude to come at disputed things with. Now I bring it to the things that I've been struggling with most lately. It is why, I'm struggling more and more, with people I largely agree with on this theonomy question of what we're supposed to pursue as Christians in law. Because I would consider this to be disputable. I'll tell you why in a minute. It's, it's disputable, and they don't talk about it like that at all. <laughs> they, like This is a absolute, tried, true, how do you not see it this way? And again, I've only seen it this, I've only seen it this way for a little while. I don't think I was a moron for 35 years. And the, the treatment often is just so aggressive. They're just often, I'll just say, a lot of them are just jerks. The, the ones on Twitter are just trolls. They, they're, they're the memery, all the memes they do. I would often call that immature. It's not, you're not, you're not rising to the level of humbly trying to bring other brothers and sisters along. Now, I, I don't want to ever, this is important, style doesn't make someone's point wrong. If the point is right, they're right. Even if they were a jerk about it, they're still right. But this, the attitude over disputed things, I wish I could just insert into, I'll give you the example, um, Owen, I think it's pronounced Strand, 
Owen Strand is with Master Seminary, so he's a John MacArthur type. You know, uh, Todd Friel is a big fan of his. That's that camp. You'd consider all these men brothers that we love. They'll he'll get into a skirmish with some of the more theonomy types people on Twitter, and usually it's Owen Strand's interlocutors, the people he's arguing with, that are worst behaved. They're much more uh, uncharitable, but he'll do it too. And now I got two Christians, two two sides of Christianity who are in who are in the faith, arguing over a secondary issue. I, w- I probably wouldn't put it tertiary. It's not a third level issue. It's a second secondary issue, and they're arguing over it like it's the the resurrection, and they're doing it very uncharitably sometimes, and also often doing it uncharitably the way this guy's doing it. I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to, I, I want to make sure I stay charitable here the best I can. But let me give you the politics one. I hear the argument from the theonomist. I get it. You're telling me, Genesis mandate, go take dominion. That means take the nations, take their governments. We, that's, what, that's what you're supposed to go do. Make the laws Christian. Make, make everything biblical. Go after it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is... It, 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 you, he's using you as his emissaries, as his ambassadors. Go take dominion, go after it. Okay, guys, I get that argument. I think it's very good. I also think the. I also think that my brothers, who are saying, guys, you just kind of seem to have this muscular, aggressive take that's almost seems obsessed sometimes with politics and government, and that doesn't seem at all like my call to live meekly or quietly with my neighbors. You seem to won't be on a war path. Now, and I hear the theonomist argue back, well, we're, you're not at a spot where you can live quietly with your neighbors, live a, live a quiet and godly life, because the government's become so uh, tyrannical. I don't think that, by the way. I think the people that talk like that are like the James White types. I don't, I don't get it, I like the, the level of sometimes panic they seem to be in. But the government's become so tyrannical, you can't live quiet, peaceable lives, quiet, peaceable, godly lives with your neighbor. Okay, all right, I I hear you. So you've got this muscular, aggressive sort of obsession, and I respond back, I I do greatly just want want to obey the command to live peaceably, quiet life. Is there anything there for me? And I I get the argument from the theonomist, but I hear back, guys, I just don't see what you're doing, this go-at-politics thing, I just don't see it modeled in acts at all. I just see an early church that is making disciples of the nations, making converts. Now, and then also good argument back to these people that are saying, you guys are too obsessed with politics, and they seem to be talking about conversions in the gospel. I would say back to them, don't forget both parts of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, yes, convert them. But don't forget the second part, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Teach them my laws. It's both things. Aren't those worthwhile arguments not to have the the tenor, not to have the tone that this other people are just morons? And how, here's often what gets me. The people I often agree with, their tone is not that they're, they're enemies or the people that disagree with them are morons. They're just weak. They're feminized, which is going to be my next topic. No, I'm not. I just think you're, I think you're kind of a jerk. I think you're being a little overly obsessed with government sometimes. And not, not maybe even say it this way, I, this just hit me, so if this doesn't come out right, 
I'm probably going to need to issue an apology. It feels like people that are theologically sound in the same camp, they're just concentrating on two different parts of the Great Commission, and they need to come together. One is concentrating more on evangelism. One is concentrating more on teaching them to observe. And we need to do both. We just need to have both. I wish I could just hear them, hear each of them say to the other, your arguments have merit. Maybe, I, maybe I'm maybe i not supposed to be mostly focused on making the laws Christian. And that's, I mean, I think it could be that simple. One group is saying, make the people Christian. Oh, I just came up with it. I think I did. Here we go. Um... The theonomy people often use the, the line from Doug Wilson, uh, everything is by what standard? Uh, every culture has to have uh, values that undergird its laws. So the really the core question of everything is by what standard? By what standard is this a good tax law? By what standard is, is this a good marriage law? By what standard is this a good whatever law? Criminal law. By what standard? And if you're not using the Bible as your standard, you're going to lose. Use secularism or paganism as your standard. You're going to have bad standards. Cool. Awesome. I agree with that. I think the other people are starting to ask, not by what standard, they're starting to ask, but by what means? Are we going to get to the standard by your aggressive going after power, is what it seems like, or are we going to use the means of conversion? Or both? Because I don't don't have a problem with saying both. Yeah, we want to make converts so that Getting to the power to do good things is more realistic. And we want to make converts so that getting the power to do godly things is is possible. I think I'm finding myself in the middle of the segment where I was just going to complain. I think I want to try to be some kind of middle ground again or something. Because it's just it's not helpful right now, the way these debates are happening. There are people turning the secondary issue into just war. And it's not it's not healthy. Last one for me, and then we'll do the memoir thing. I'm, there's a group of them out the, on the Twitter world, and there's a group of Christianity right now that is kind of just obsessed with masculinity. Their thing is, I mean, yeah, we, we are more feminized as a culture than we were, but there is something called an overreaction, guys. We don't ever want to be, listen to me, this is about adulthood. This is about being adults. We never react. We always respond. Reaction is what children do. Responding is what adults do. Think about your hand on a stove. Your body reacts. Just go, go, do something. But in that, sometimes you need to react to stay out of danger. Most good things are going to come from measured responses, not reactions. And so when the church or the culture gets overly feminized, don't react. Slow down. Let's come up with a response on how to re-masculinize the, the church the way it should be, or the culture that it should be. The, I, I think they've, they've nailed, yeah, the reality that we have become feminized, but their reactions almost seems like cartoonish versions of manhood, like Joe Rogan, Andrew Tate versions of manhood. I'm not saying names on purpose, by the way, because there are some valuable things these folks say. I don't want to poison the well. I just think they've gone too far on... Masculinity. Oh, there's a good example. I just thought of one I saw that got on my nerves. One person in particular on Twitter who's got a pretty big following in that part of the world of that segment of Christianity. With some real uh, undue criticism for Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler's so weak, so feminized, preaches to the emotions. All right. Um, the 
emotions have been too focused on. That's true. We're an overly emotional place. We cater to emotions too much. Now, our reaction can be just yell, don't be sensitive at all, don't have any kind of caveat to anything, don't have... uh, don't communicate truth in a way that's in love, because part of communicating truth in love would be understanding how someone's going to hear it. Just don't worry about all that. Just toss it out there and see what it is. And if you don't like it, you can, one of the things I grew up with, you can like it or lump it. I don't care. All right. I don't think you're going to be effective that way. And his argument is people like, Matt Chandler, too feminized. It's, gir- it's girly now. Talks to the emotions. Listen, there are certainly preachers that talk too much to the emotions that won't say true things to try to uh, to keep people's, I don't know, emotions high or tickle their ears. Yeah, that's a problem. But just the idea that we would appeal to emotions that God gave, emotions are God-created, it's often how people change their minds. Now, way more often than not, the mind informs the emotions. You know how sometimes you can open someone's mind? It's through an emotional appeal. It's not just opening the emotions. You can actually affect someone's thinking, or at least more than this. I should say it this way. You're more likely to be able to start getting to get someone's mind to speak to their reason if you have built some kind of credibility of not being a, well, a jerk about their emotions. This, if like that. Matt Chandler is one of the most effective communicators of Christianity in the country. And we're going to sh- fire shots at each other because your cartoonish version of masculinity is not being matched by someone who's, well, that's snarky. I'm not going to say that. All right, that's it. I'm just, I, I give you that one-minute sermon to say, let's not talk about our preferences like they're tried and true doctrine and be gracious with one another on how we talk about them in person and on the Internet and think about what's effective. You know that's probably a good place to end. I, I could, I'll, I'll use, I'll do the Britney Spears thing there. You know, I, that's fine. I have a podcast and I can do whatever I want, at least on time. I'll, I'll go fast. Britney Spears has a memoir coming out apparently uh, this week. She's been famous lately for just obviously suffering terrible mental health uh, crises. I, th- I think I go that far. And I just picked up. The story this week that she's apparently going to say in the memoir, she had a had an abortion as a 19 or 20-year-old, and because the father, who's Justin Timberlake, didn't want her to have a kid, I want to say two things. Uh, three things. One, it's obvious she's disturbed. It's obvious she has some very, emotion, very serious emotional and mental problems. It's worth asking when someone has such public breakdowns like that, I wonder how that happened. I wonder how that person developed such major problems. Uh, I think in part, the culture did it to her, her parents did it to her, in that we were sticking a 16-year-old girl in overly sexualized apparel and turning her into a sex symbol. I don't know what that does to a 16, 17, 18-year-old girl to know that she is an object of sexual fantasy for grown men. That was a very bad thing to do to her, and I'm sure that is part of p- part of her meltdown. I mean, here she is now in her early 40s. That's hard for women. I wish it. W- I wish it wasn't. I wish aging were easier, ladies, than it is. I guess men too. When you start to lose some of that sex appeal, I, we we told her at 16 and 17, "What are you? Your sex appeal. 
You're also a pretty good dancer. We all know you can't sing, but you are sex appeal. That's your purpose. And when you start to lose that, people fall apart. And then there's, there's definitely correlation here. There is correlation between women who have abortions and then major emotional and mental problems. That weighs on somebody, ending human life. I, th- I think maybe in the next abortion talk you have, just whenever it happens organically, it's one of the good examples to use. Britney Spears is disturbed. We all see it. One of the contributing factors is abortion. Isn't that a, the sad reality that we would want to prevent? That yes, it kills a human life, and then what it does to uh, a woman as well is we can see being outside of God's plan how it's so destructive. Britney Spears is such a good example of it that we could put put forward. What happens when we're outside of God's good design for sexuality? Well, people go crazy. They're harmed. What happens when we're outside of God's good design for parenting and we kill our children and outside of God's good design for justice on killing? There's wreckage. She's a good example of it in the news. So if it comes up in your workplace, maybe there's just a tool for you. Yeah, I'm glad we did that. We were able to do it quite fast. I will be back next week, I'm sure. If you have thoughts on anything, I only told you at the beginning of the show, so I'll tell you again. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads. Look for me, Corey Truax. You can respond to anything I said here. You can also find me at Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com for any of your comments or questions or anything you want to have covered on the show. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.